morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. Good morning. Ooh, you can hear me, can't you? All right. It's good to be here with you. Uh, and so for those who are listening on the air or online later, glad that they can join us. However that works, where they can, wherever they can hear it. Uh, so for those who are listening, Pastor Kevin Thompson here, and I'm glad to be here. It's been a little while since I've been in this class. So I'll try to make sure I speak slow as well, because I know I get so excited about this stuff. I speak fast, um, especially for the radio. Uh, but before we begin our study today, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We give you great thanks for another day in which we get to live in this world and we get to serve you. We thank you now for the opportunity to study your word, that you have blessed us so wonderfully by giving us your holy word. Your word, which is constantly giving us what we need, strengthening us, encouraging us. And Lord, we pray that now your Holy Spirit would be with us as we study your word together as brothers and sisters in Christ in your name. And so, Lord, we pray these things and all things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are going to do as we usually do in this class and look at the lect assigned lectionary readings for next Sunday. So um, the first reading, the Old Testament reading for next Sunday is from Malachi. Just a small little note that I didn't notice until this morning. Um, but next week's reading in Malachi is from Malachi 3. But today in worship, if you've already been or you will be shortly, we read from Malachi 4. I know. We go a little bit backwards next week into in the prophecy of Malachi. Um, but if you're at St. Paul's this week, the um, preacher is not preaching on Malachi, so we don't have to do the backtrack. But we begin today with Malachi chapter 3. We're going to read verses 13 through 18. Malachi 3, beginning at verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And here ends our Old Testament reading for next Sunday. So, Malachi, we jump into Malachi today and just... Uh, Simple reminders, kind of basic details about Malachi. He's one of the prophets, last prophet listed in the Old Testament. In fact, you probably, if you're holding a paper Bible, just turn the page and you get to the New Testament or some study notes in between the Testaments because it's the end of the Old Testament. It's the last, last prophet there. Interesting thing about Malachi is his, the, Malachi's name means my messenger. One of the challenges by, for many scholars who study the book of Malachi especially is that the identity, the exact identity of Malachi isn't completely known. We're not in complete agreement upon who is Malachi. And not for lack of study or not that it doesn't totally matter, but really 
let's just focus on the fact that he's the Lord's messenger. And he's, given, and he's bringing to the people, and to us today as well, the Lord's messenger. So I don't intend to go down the whole track of who could it be. Uh, but not, not because we just don't care, but because really today we just focus on what's this message that the Lord's messenger is bringing to God's people. So here we come, this message from the last prophet. One other note I want to bring up as we look at Malachi is Malachi very frequently uses rhetorical questions in his prophecy. Frequently. And by that, I read some note and I forgot the number, so I don't want to misquote and say a bunch of numbers and then it's like the wrong number. But it's a large number of the statements that are written in Malachi. It's not a very long book. And of the rather short book, significant, possibly half or more of the statements that are in there are rhetorical questions. Point being, it's a very um, common way that this prophet writes. And if you think about it in our own lives, how often is a rhetorical question sometimes the most powerful question someone can ask? I was actually just doing, leading a Bible study this last week on the, in the book of John. And not only that, but Jesus stated something rhetorically. He actually wasn't even asking a question, but he stated something rhetorically to the people. And then he just stood there. It's the account when he, he's standing there and he's writing in the, in the, the sand with his finger. And he just stood there, let this rhetorical question stand, and let the people steep and stew in their own thoughts. And that was more powerful than if he had come out right and said something, convicted them, or told them what they did wrong, or what they should have done, or what have you. So the same point comes here is that Malachi, using these rhetorical questions, becomes rather powerful. And we'll see um, at least one, if not a couple of those in our reading that we've already read here. So let's go back. And really, it's interesting because where the lectionary divides it, again, not criticizing. I just don't have the full logic of how was the lectionary put together. Um, but in part, we kind of get thrown right in the middle of something. Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, is our, our scripture reading. Really is it's really part of it's the last part of what was read previously in the book in book three or chapter three. Malachi chapter three, you go into this whole portion and even gets in this discussion of tithing and giving to God, and we don't read any of that next week. But what we do read here, beginning at verse thirteen, this is the Lord. It's interesting, thirteen through fifteen. This interesting, really almost discourse between God and the people. And I don't know about you, but at first it took me a couple minutes to really sift it out. <laughs> Who's talking at which point and which where? So just think about this. And in part, I am going to reread with some inflection because I think there's a lot of emotion in this. Again, I'm assuming emotion, but I have the words. But based on the context and the grammar, I think there is fair emotion to assume in this. God says, your words have been hard against me. This is what he's saying to the people, to the people of God. Saying their words have been hard against him. Which is another way of saying that they are harsh, critical words. Well, like I said, we're kind of jumping in this. So what are these harsh, critical words that the people have said? Now, I know I made a handout to help you all today. But if you have a paper Bible, or if you have a, one electronically, or just listen with your ears. We go back to Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. And here's some of the harsh words. God says, the Lord says, I have loved you, but you, the people say... How have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? There ends the verse. But the people right there, God's saying, I've loved you. And what's the people's harsh word against him? How? God, how have you loved us? 
And not only right before they said that, did he say he loved them? I mean, he said it. I've loved you. And they're questioning it. But if that's not enough, I mean, he has clearly shown the people that he loved them. And yet, even if they look in their lives, look at all the stuff that God had done, look at all the stuff that God had said to them prior to those words right there in chapter 1, the people are saying so harshly, so critically to God, how have you loved us? Which... Human note, right? If you're in a relationship with someone that doesn't have to be marital, but whatever, you're in, you have this friendship, this relationship with someone, and you do things for them, you care for them, you show love to them in multiple different ways, and you have that relationship. Think of how painful it would be if that person says, uh, you don't love me. How? I can't see that in any which way. And yet there have been countless ways in which you have shown and expressed love through service or positive words or time together or whatever it might be. So how, how painful would that be for the Lord to hear? All this stuff he's done for the people, and yet they say, how have you loved us, God? So that's just one example. Then if you turn to Malachi chapter 2, verse 7, what's another harsh word that the people had said to him? Malachi 2, verse 7. For the lips of a... Wait. That's the wrong one. That's the wrong verse. I'm sorry. <laughs> um... That's the wrong one. So disregard that because I wrote down the wrong reference. My apologies. That happens. But we have one other that I can point out to you because then here it comes in the next two verses we'll read next week. Malachi 3, verse 14 through 15. Here's more harsh words the people said. You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. I know we haven't unpacked those, but those are harsh words to God as well. Very critical words to say to Him. And look at this. How have we, one, they don't even know how they've, they've spoken harsh against Him. But here's what they said. They said it's vain to serve God. People of God who've seen, who've experienced what God has done for them. And they flat out say it's vain. Likely a similar word that's used in other parts of Scripture to mean empty or worthless. Especially if you look in Ecclesiastes. Might be a favorite book of our former vicar here at St. Paul's. Who loves that book, Ecclesiastes? It starts out with vanity, vanity, right? Everything is meaningless. And here we have this similar word. These people are saying to God, it's serving you, God. Serving God is vain. And then... They go on to say, what is the profit of us keeping his charges or walking in mourning? Now, walking in mourning would have been a, a, a religious ritual, if you will. Something that they would have done, in part prescribed by God, and honoring God as they, they, um, they do this particularly this, uh, in mourning, being in repentance. So point being, this is a religious practice that they would do, and they're saying this religious practice, this thing they do in regards to God... And keeping God's charge, His commands, His ways, what profits that for us? We put it in our English words, they're literally saying, what good does it do me? Following your charges, your ways, these religious practices you've given to us. What's in it for me? If it's you, think if that sounds a little bit harsh. I think so. Okay? 
And then they keep going and they say, look at this, the arrogant, the people who are of their own selves puffed up in their own ways, people not following God, just puffed up in their own prideful, arrogant ways, and they're blessed. So now the people are going on and they're complaining. They're saying, well, look at us, we don't, we're not blessed, and yet these people, the arrogant, they're blessed. The people of God absolutely were blessed, and yet there they sit complaining, having this harsh word against the God, saying they're not blessed. Now the thing is, is to them, it looked like they weren't being blessed. Because this is something we talk about often in our Bible studies, right? In the worldly eyes, in earthly eyes, maybe it didn't look like they were blessed. Maybe they didn't have the physical, earthly, worldly, financial, or, or whatever have you types of blessings. So to them, it didn't look like it. They absolutely were, but they're looking around, hey, that person's blessed more than me. And it goes on to even describe it even more. Evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Evil doers. Pretty self-explanatory, right? People who do evil. Didn't need me to stand up here to tell you that one. People who are opposed to God, not followers of God, and it says that they're getting their own way. That they not only are prospering, again, likely thinking earthly, worldly here. But don't skip over the second part of that verse there. They put God to the test. Now, are we supposed to test God? No one wants to answer that. One person said, shook their head, no, thank you very much. No, ideally we're not supposed to be testing God. So that's, again, another thing. These evildoers, and here they are testing God, and yet they seem to be prospering. And on top of that, not only do they test God, they escape. Get away with it. So, does this sound like anything you might hear today? A couple more nods this time. There we go, right? It sounds similar to today. Because you could talk about a couple things in here. Think about, we've been, especially as St. Paul's talking about stewardship, right? In the last couple of weeks, and the fact that God has blessed us richly. All of us. Now, some of us in this world have been blessed greatly with finances. Financial wealth. And if it were, we were just to live in this world, the world would say, yep, if you've got financial wealth, you've got it, you're blessed. But if the world looks at you and you don't have financial wealth, they're saying, no, you're not. You don't have much. But here at St. Paul's, looking at stewardship last couple weeks, we've been looking at the fact that all of us are blessed. Some more with money, some more with time, some more with the, the abilities, the talents, the skills, right? So this all ties in. I didn't do this on purpose, just the way the lectionary rolls it for us, okay? This is just God working, his, his spirit working, so we can keep looking at this stuff. But the point is, is compared to the er earthly, the worldly, others look blessed. And also, I think this, doesn't this passage bring up kind of one of those age-old questions we as, we as Christians consider? Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm not going to ask someone to get on the microphone and say, admit full admission of this. But likely, at some point in all of our lives, we might have had this kind of very thought. God, I'm your follower. I'm trying to do right by you. I'm trying to follow you. I'm trying to be faithful. And yet, God, look at all the evil in this world, the people who do all this evil stuff, these evildoers. Yet, God, you're just letting them get away. What about me? 
and now again, I'm not going to take any, no, not make anyone admit this publicly. But likely all of us at some point may have thought that, or maybe at some point will. Because you think, well, I'm trying to be faithful, and yet, God, I don't look like I'm blessed. It doesn't feel like it. You complain, have these harsh words. So it's, it's not all that new of a concept brought up here in Scripture today. The wicked that seemingly prosper while the righteous seem to suffer only. But, we're at the end of the church here. Next week is the last week of the church here. Which, for you all in this room, right, you're probably fairly familiar with the church calendar. Been through it a couple of times before. So you're pro fairly familiar that we end this, but it always seems so odd, right? Because here we are in November, we're about to end the church year, but everyone else is gearing up for Christmas, right? So it's like the calendar just doesn't make sense to us. But I want to say a quick note, word of note on that is that fact that we end this church year because our church calendar isn't based on the world, but it's based around the events of Christ. It centers around Christ. As it should be, right? All that we do centered around Christ. So I know it sounds weird to think that next week is the last week in the, the, the church calendar year. You go around to your other friends who aren't part of the church and say it's the last Sunday of the year, they're not going to know what you're talking about, okay? Because then after that, we get into Advent, the season of preparation before, and we go into that. But I bring that up because all of this focus on how the wicked seem to prosper, sure, maybe they do. Maybe in this world, they do seem to prosper. Maybe it does seem like they, they get away. They do evil wrongs. They test God and they escape and they get away with it. They might even have more wealth. Who knows? Whatever. But are they going to get away eternally? No. No. See, I spend so much time next door teaching the discussion-based class, so try to put you all on the spot. And maybe we'll, you know, we should get a microphone stand. You can all come up. No, I'm just kidding. Don't worry. I won't do that. No. Will they get away eternally? No. So this, as we focus on the end of the church calendar year, we're thinking about, especially if you've been to worship, right, uh, and you consider the lessons today, it talks about how at some point this world's going to come to an end. This earthly, worldly life will come to an end. And yeah, maybe people seem to prosper here and now, but that does nothing for them eternally. It's all gone. It's all gone. Actually just was able to um, officiate a wedding just yesterday. And chose a very common reading that's chosen for weddings, 1 Corinthians 13. Well, if you really dig into that, what 1 Corinthians 13, talking about love and this, all this other stuff, gets at is the fact that all these gifts, the stuff we have in this world, one day will go away. But what's the one thing that endures? Love. Because that love that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 is the love of Christ. Which we tie back into here. Now, what's the one thing that endure are the people of God. So, let's go on. And not spend 40 minutes just on one lesson, okay? We go on to verse 16 through 18 because here, so there, that first section, that's where we have where the people are complaining against God. They're saying it's vain, it's pointless to serve you, God. It's not profiting me anything. Now we take a huge switch in tone, and this opens up what most commentators think being the last section of Malachi, if you look at its structure. Verse 16, those who feared the Lord. Fearing the Lord, you've likely heard that multiple times. The believers, the people who feared, had that love, honor, that respect. The followers of God. The faithful, we could say. They spoke with one another. I, I like this next one. The Lord paid attention and heard them. 
And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now at first read, if you just go surface level, level it might sound a little bit odd. It's like, was the Lord not paying attention before? No, not at all. But the Lord is always paying attention. He's omniscient. He knows all things. But we see here that here he has these people complaining. Harsh words speaking critically at him. And then when you see this other category of people who are fearing the Lord, he pays attention. He hears them. And that other word there um, is, or that other word put in there is a book of remembrance. And that word remembrance is very important, very, um, very gospel-filled actually. Because when the Lord remembers his people, it means he gives them his promise. He remembers his covenants he's made with them. He remembers that he has them in his heart all the time. He remembers what he has to give them. It's not that he forgot about them before. Remember, God's all-knowing. He knows all things. It's not like he just loses his memory and can't remember things. But to remember, for the Lord to remember, is to really look on someone with favor, to give them his gospel and his grace. And here, it doesn't just say he remembered them. It says a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord, which... This brings up and is comparable to what's referred to as the book of life in Revelation. And I'm not getting into that one today. If you want to do Revelation, we'll do that another time. Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, okay? But if you are interested, you go there and you can see very comparable. You have this book of life in which the names of those who believe in God and through Jesus Christ as their Savior are written, Okay? point is, is the book of life, the book of remembrance is which the names of the people who fear God, who love God, followers of God are written. I mean, they have his promises and that even though they may not seem to prosper in this world, they will truly prosper eternally because they'll have that eternal life. Because then he goes on, he says, um, they shall be mine. Verse 17, they shall be mine. Now I have, very, I have little children. I try not to talk about them a whole lot, right? Because as I was once counseled very wisely, as a pastor said, don't talk about your children, especially throw them in the sermons all the time. So I really try not to, but I have to tell you this because this isn't just my child, right? A lot of children say this. Mine. Right? My one-year-old knows that word all too well. She runs around saying mine, right? And as a little child, admittedly, we probably all said it. Okay? Do you have a lot of that still going on? You're working on it? Good. Kindergarten's not dealing with that as much. That's good. All right. So let, that day will pass, hopefully. But you think about it, little children, is kind of funny, right? We laugh and chuckle, but the fact is, is they, it's theirs, and they want it. Right? When a little kid says, mine, they want it. And they want to take it from the other person because they want to have it, they want to play with it, they want it, right? It's theirs. But here, we don't have a little child saying this. It says, the Lord, the Lord of hosts says this, they shall be mine. It's such a beautiful, beautiful statement that God says about the people that they shall be his. He's going to care for them. He's going to love them. They're going to be in his grasp, in his grip forever. And then it goes on, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I'll spare them. It's a beautiful gospel word. And it's really all this is talking about the day of judgment, which I kind of already got to. But that, that in the day of judgment, when that last day comes, whenever it will be, we shall be the Lord's. And that's a statement that you can absolutely take right out of Scripture and you can say it to yourself. Okay? Again, not to alter Scripture, but you could essentially put in here your own word, your own name. 
They shall be mine. And insert your name for they. That, that for, for me, that Kevin shall be mine. To say personally, the Lord says to me that I shall be his forever. That's the truth. That's what we can say off of this. That's a beautiful truth that all of us can say as God's people. Or again, to the next lesson, it's not something that we did on our own, but through baptism. But I don't want to jump into that too quick. Any questions or thoughts on Malachi? No? All right. Great. Um, but before we do move, really to me, what I, what I see, I mean, you have this second half that has all this gospel part. God's saying it's gonna be, we're going to be his people. Uh, he'll take care of his people. But especially I think it's this interesting part in the first half we already looked at. That these people are crying out, serving God's vein. And there might be times in which maybe we think, why do I do all this stuff? Why do I come to church? Why do we do the stand-up, sit down, say these things, do these things? Especially little children, like, why do we do this? Someone who's not a Christian or not used to going to church a whole lot, they're like, why? What's the point? The world's going to constantly tell us and tell others, it's, it's not, there is no point, it's pointless, it's vain. But we know that what we do here isn't in vain. Because we're not all, and we're not, and, and also, key point here, the stuff we do is not in vain, not just because it gives us eternal life. Someday, whenever that day of judgment comes, however many years it could be, but also because it gives us life today. At the end of the church year, church calendar year, we can sometimes get too focused on the judgment day, that last day, whenever it'll be. But also God gives life and purpose right here and now today. It's not vain to serve God today because already today He gives us comfort that these words that they shall be mine doesn't mean just someday you'll be God's, but also you're God's here today. And now, through the troubles you're going through, through the joys that you have, you're God's and, they, and God's blessed you. It's not in vain. Alright, Colossians. So, next week we're going to move uh, for our epistle to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 13 through 20. Alright, I will read Colossians chapter 1, 13 through 20. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the, all the fullness of God was pleasant to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And here ends our epistle reading for next week. So, as tends to be with the lectionary, the epistle is not as strongly connected to end times, end of the church year. However, I kind of mentioned already, baptism gets in here. So we can see roots of that. Of course, all God's word is 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 unified together. But before we dig into this and look at it a little bit more, essentially there, there is what is referenced here as, uh, or what is talked about in Colossians as the Colossian heresy. 
Okay, so a little bit of context is there, there's this discussion of, well, what was the heresy? What was this false teaching that was going on in the time of, that in, this, in which this is written? Why these things are written, that there is this false teaching going on? That sounds like a broken record. We don't fully know. Okay? Again, reading and studying and reading read a couple different books, a couple different sources, it's not completely agreed upon what is, or, or I should say, what was the Colossian heresy. Because it doesn't come out right and say explicitly, here was the heresy, here's definition, right? You go to school and you have all, all your def- terms and your definitions, it's not clearly stated for us. However, we can look considerably at what we are given, specifically if we look at Colossians. Here, in Paul being the author of Colossians, writing to the church in Colossae, based on what Paul is writing about, what he's saying, we have some pretty good, or stronger than pretty good, Pretty fair assumptions on what was the heresy. And essentially, most people agree upon that the heresy was um, denying the fullness of Christ. We believe that Christ, based on Scripture, because we believe it because Scripture says so, Christ, Jesus Christ, is full God and full man. And so, especially as we'll get into in this reading, it seems to be that they were denying that he was true God. And that also gets paired with the fact that Gnosticism at that time was, was rather significant. Gnosticism being that teaching in which they think that all things of the earth or worldly are inherently evil. Which we disagree with because, I mean, God created the world. The world and the earthly things are not inherently evil. Corrupted by sin, yes. But because we, they are created by God and God desires us to use creation, it's not like the world and earthly are inherently evil. So if you pair those things together, there are people who think that the, at that time, they were thinking that, well, he can't be fully God and human at the same time because he's God. Well, he can't be with this evil earthly flesh. It just doesn't make sense. I'll admit, it doesn't make sense. Jesus Christ being full God and full man does not make earthly sense. I say in confirmation with our 7th and 8th graders all the time, can you explain to me scientifically how Jesus is true God and true man? 100%, 100%. Can't do it. I can't, right? If I said I could, I'm lying, right? We can't scientifically explain it. It doesn't fully make sense. It doesn't mean it's not true. So here we go. Colossians chapter 1. Right off the bat, again, I kind of feel like we're splicing through some sections here. Um, so verse 13 um, and 13 and 14, really, kind of part of a previous section. But there, here lies some great baptismal language. Verse 13, he, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And I know sometimes you might think, all right, pastors get picky based on grammar, right? But we're picky for a reason. Transferred and delivered are in this past tense, which is there we can talk about this baptismal language. That in the past, when we go back to our baptism, God transferred us, he delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Darkness being sin and death and the devil. That's the domain, this evil, the fact that because we're born into sin and we have sin in our own lives, that's the domain we're in. But Jesus Christ transfers us out of that and set into the kingdom of, of himself or God into the kingdom of his son Jesus Christ where sin, death, and devil doesn't rule us it doesn't define us so there's our baptismal language but we'll go on more so to the last few verses verse 15 and following now verse 15 through 20 is just steeped in theological language 
It really is. Not going to do it. But we could spend a lot of time really getting into all, every one of these, these phrases that are put here. Okay? We just don't have the time for it. And volumes of books likely are written on each, one, or each kind of portions of this. But, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. So here, we get this discussion of image. Which takes us to thinking about that um, we hear when God created Adam and Eve. Mankind is created in God's image. So we have that re- recollection here. And this doesn't say that he just kind of looks like God, but rather it's saying that he is God. He is the image of the invisible God. We can't see God the Father, God who's invisible, but Jesus Christ comes in the flesh and makes it visible. We can see him. So here, that's what's meant by image. And thinking of Adam and Eve created in God's image. Now, we humans, we don't know what that's like because since Adam and Eve, everything's been corrupted by sin. Originally, when God created Adam in his image, all was good and perfect and well. So here we have that image. And then it says the firstborn of creation. This does not mean that he was the first thing created. If Jesus was created first, that would completely shoot down all the other teaching about how Jesus is God. That's not what this means. But rather, this is a way, a way to refer that he is um, the cause of creation. Things coming from him, he's the firstborn coming from him, are all things in creation. Which then goes on to emphasize what's said next. Verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Now when you're in confirmation class, who was primarily of the, of the Trini- Trinity? Who was primarily responsible for creation? Father. I won't make our principal say the answer, right? You go through it enough. Father, right? Thank you. So the Father is primarily responsible for creation. But what does this verse just say? Who created? It said Jesus. It just said Jesus is the creator. Okay? Scripture does not contradict itself. All right? Father is primarily responsible for a creator. That's a whole other discussion there, right? All these textbooks we could read. But if we say believe, believe in a trinity, a one God, three persons, which we do, all three are responsible together. You can't separate them. Now, I know we talk about it and we try to help and we help so that we can help learn and we can see and understand more of our God. God shows himself the father be primarily the creator because that's how he helps teach us about who he is. But that doesn't mean that the, mean that the son and the spirit weren't involved either. You can't just separate them. Right? And they all existed since the very beginning, since ever, and always will be. And here, this is the only distinguishing point that I think we can, that Scripture gives us to help think about it. At the last part of that verse. All things were created through Him and for Him. So we can still say the Father primarily created, but then if we go on to say the Father created through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the best way I've ever heard it put to say it. Okay? All three responsible for it, but the Father created all things through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Get that Trinitarian all packed in there at one time. Okay? Um, we go on. He was before all things. So this, it's very stating, stating very clearly, he's not less than the Father in any way. He's before all things were created. 
In him all things hold together, which is another here point against this Gnosticism. Because if all of creation is held together in Christ, then all things can't be inherently evil. Because Christ is not evil, Christ is God. Therefore, if all things hold together in him, all things, the worldly, the earthly, are not inherently evil. Now, yes, the world is corrupted by sin, but it's not inherently evil. doesn't mean we should just say, get rid of the world, we're done with it, and only live for God. We enjoy and embrace the creation he's given us. So, we go on. He's the firstborn from the dead. Or I skip some. He's the head of the body of the church, so he's the head, like, he's God. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, this is interesting. If you take this, he's the firstborn of creation and the firstborn of the dead. Because what significant event in Jesus' life could this draw our attention to? Firstborn from the dead. When he rose from the dead. Yes, there we go. You just sat in the lucky seat where you get to answer all my questions. Thank you very much. The resurrection. All things, all creation comes from him. He's the firstborn of creation. And then the firstborn from the dead. All things, not <coughs> too worked up. Not only created, then all things, all things are made new in him. That's pretty cool. Right? See kind of the bookends coming together on this stuff? Alright? And then the last part. And through him, verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things. And that word reconcile, it's a buzzword for me whenever I teach because, well, I took a 10-week course on conflict reconciliation at the seminary. But reconcile is an important word, which I learned there in that class, because Every th reconcile means to, to bring back, to put back in right relationship. Now that whole class on conflict reconciliation was putting us back within each other in right relationship. And the only way that we can become in right relationship with each other as people is through Jesus Christ. Okay? And here it talks about more than just our relationships amongst each other and people, but that Christ will reconcile all things, bring all things, all of creation back in right relationship. Which here does tie in our kind of end of the world stuff where one day he'll make all things new. Any questions or thoughts on this one? On Colossians? Like I said, if you're really curious, um, don't hesitate to ask or at least later. Um, this is so much like theological doctrine type language that we could spend a long time in that. Um, but we have another reading. So we should get that. And you're sufficient with that already, it looks like. So, Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Anyone offhand know what that is? Or did you flip there? Oh, we turned the sheet. That's right. Forget to give handouts. Okay. Again, we're at the end of the church year. We're about to celebrate or uh, prepare in Advent and then celebrate Christmas. It might seem a little bit odd at first. All of a sudden, why are we looking at Jesus on the cross? Okay. But there's a reason for it. One, it's scripture. We can look at all scripture anytime. But especially as we'll get into this, we see some themes that very much directly tie to um, the kingdom of God and eternity and the like. Um, that very much fit with the end of the church here. But I know it can sound a little bit odd to, you know, well, you go to the store. Is, are the stores already open for, like, ready for Christmas? They're probably decorated for Christmas, right? Yeah, I mean, before Halloween, who knows, right? So if you go in the stores, it looks like Christmas. And here we are, Jesus is hanging on the cross. We're already to, like... Some uh, Good Friday stuff here. But let's read this. Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 27. 
And there followed him, Jesus, a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Here ends the gospel reading for next week. It's a little bit odd before Advent, right? But let's look into this a little bit more. And I know this hopefully is familiar for you, which means we've heard it before. We've read the scripture. We've been in church um, and worship. Uh, but hopefully, as always, when we return to God's word, we hear something new or in a different way. If we back up to verse 27, uh, 27 through 31, we really, again, kind of come in this tail end of, of what's been happening. Jesus has been going up to the, to the place where he'll be crucified and having Simon carry the cross. And there he is, followed him a great multitude of people and these women who are mourning him. Uh, again, remember, some of these people were following him out of sympathy. They truly cared. Some were just curious. Obviously, we hear later um, in our reading here, very much some were opposed and, and not um, there for him in good ways at all. But we have these, these women in verse 28 who are, or 27 who are weeping and mourning. And... To put more in context, if you were to page back to chapter 19 of Luke, Luke chapter 19, the triumphal entry, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, days before this event in Luke 23 takes place, he's talking about how the people there um, in chapter 19 should weep over their own city. So as he enters into Jerusalem, he talks about how they should be weeping for themselves. And then here again later, again, he says very much the similar thing. So we see this constantly through Scripture, the unity and the fact that Jesus has this plan and for the whole time he knows what's going on. And things just keep coming more and more revealed to these people. And so here, though, look at this. Whew. These, uh, these verses through 31 are not easy to take, really. If you really think about what he's saying, this is harsh. He says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. Verse 29 Days are coming, these days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nurse. 
A day will come when things will be so horrible that some will say, blessed are those who never bore, were barren, or couldn't nurse. And I take this seriously, and I, I say it, I, I go carefully, because obviously I am, I don't know what it's like. I'm not a woman. I don't know what it's like, and I can't imagine the pain and hurt that people have experienced in their life when they cannot have children, when the womb is barren, or when they couldn't nurse, or um, even here you talk about the fact that they couldn't bear children. That is so painful. And I'm only speaking from what people have told me. And yet the things will come, become so bad that people around will even say, even those are blessed. Those who suffer so badly from barren womb and can't bear children and nurse, and yet people will say it's so bad at that time that those are the ones who are blessed. That's bad. I can't imagine. So Jesus is pointing to the, the horrible things that are to come, the destruction that's going to come on earth. Okay, And even so, he goes on in verse 30 to say, the people are going to cry out to the mountains, fall on us, and the hills cover us. Which is essentially, again, to say, things are so horrible, come and essentially take our life. For the mountains and the hills to fall on them, cover them, isn't to say, like, protect them, but to actually take them away out of that pain and out of that misery and that suffering. Now, careful here. This is not Jesus saying, to wish this. Jesus is not telling the people to wish their death, to hasten their death in any way. This is just simply what he's saying. These are the cries that will come out from the people. These are the cries of suffering that the people will say in the days of the destruction that are to come ahead. It's serious. He's pointing to serious destruction to come. Okay, herein lies a connection to why at this time of the year we read this, because he's talking about destruction. Now referencing specifically destruction of Jerusalem, Jerusalem that would come, but especially we can also see then in the end times, all the things will come to an end. Okay, So if you just stop there, it's probably the worst way to end. This is the gospel of the Lord. <laughs> Thankfully we don't stop there, okay? Because Jesus has more to say. And we go on in verse 32. Um, we have these... Uh, Criminals? This is an interesting note. I was listening to this. Uh, Professor David Lewis from the seminary brought this up um, in one of his uh, talks on this. Different, depending on which gospel writer writes this, this is small, but I kind of found it interesting. Depending on which gospel writer uh, writes this portion of the account, they talk about how two others who were criminals were led away to put to death with him. Some, some gospel writers put um, two other criminals were led away with him. And here it says two others who were criminals, classifying those two others. But it's just, I just, it was really interesting as I, as I heard this because some of the Gospels, the way they're written, it, it sounds almost like they're lumping Jesus in with the criminals. Jesus and two other criminals were going to be crucified. And here, Luke makes it, or, yeah, Luke. Luke makes it very clear. Jesus and two others who were criminals were led away. Just an interesting fact, okay? Now, Scripture, so it's not wrong. But depending on which way you look at it, it could actually shed light on different things. Here, the light is shed on the fact that Jesus is innocent. Absolutely makes it clear. He's not a criminal, and yet here he goes, led away to be crucified. Some of the other accounts where it says Jesus and the other criminals, lumping them all in together. Well, wasn't he treated like one of the criminals? He was. Right? Jesus was innocent. However, depending on which gospel writer, how those things are written, we have different focus. So... Uh, highlight here because we're running short on time. Verse 17. No, I don't know why I said 17. Verse 34. Jesus says, there he is. He's hanging on the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
Now that is an incredibly powerful statement. Also, side note, if you want to study, there's some debate on historically some, some believe, some manuscripts don't have this, whatever, but we know that Jesus' words, believe it should be in here, there's enough evidence to have it in there, that's why we have it. That's my quick version on that. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. How powerful is that? He's dying on the cross, innocent, and he says, forgive them. In one part, you go look at this, Father, he's saying, they don't even know what they're doing. And forgive them. And yet, even the fact that Jesus did come to proclaim forgiveness to even those who know what they've done, and yet those who know what they've done is completely wrong, and they repent of it, he still says, again, I forgive you. Forgiveness just being a prominent theme in the gospel, of course, right? The gospel is good news. That's what forgiveness is. But it's, forgiveness is given to those who don't even know what they've done wrong, and it's given to those who don't even deserve it. That's what Christ came to do. And how powerful of a message, this being one of the few things, um, some series have it where the seven, seven words that are spoken from the cross, seven times Jesus spoke from the cross, and this being one of them. And this is one of the few things he said from the cross. So of course it draws our attention and see what's so important about what he has to say there. They cast lots, he goes on, and um, we get to the last part. Verse 39 through 43. Here is where I think we have more clearly the connection to our Old Testament lesson. Okay, you have these two criminals. First one hanged on, was hanged there. He railed at Jesus. He's criticizing Jesus. Aren't the Christ, save yourself. But the other says to him, don't you fear God? Here's where I think the connection comes into, especially the Old Testament. You have one who's saying, he's criticizing Jesus, speaking harsh words against Jesus. And the one who says, he, well, he doesn't say it, but we can put the words around. He fears God. So one who's not believing, not fearing, he's criticizing, speaking harsh words like we have in the Old Testament from Malachi. And you hear the one who fears the Lord. He says, well, don't, don't you fear him? Because he does. I think therein lies our, our strong connection to our, our Old Testament. And now look at, okay, so remember our Old Testament, right? Those who are speaking, use the right hands here. Those who are speaking harsh against the Lord in Malachi... Lord had harsh things to say. Those who feared him, oh, well, we didn't hear a whole lot of what he had to say. But what he said so prominently about those who feared him, their names are in the book of remembrance. So, let's go back to the gospel. He says, don't you fear him, you're under the same sentence, right? They're all condemned, they're hanging to die. And in verse 1, he even admits, we justly deserve this, but this man has done nothing wrong. So there's a confession, right? He admits. And there also lies another connection to the, the epistle. This man is admitting and confessing who Jesus is. He's confessing that Jesus is innocent. That he's God. Now, this is, I want to be careful, right? I know I'm saying he's God, that he's confessing he's God. There's not a deliberate confession. He is the Son of God right yet, right? But he is saying that he recognizes who Jesus is. That he's this innocent man hung there on the cross, right? And then he goes on in his next words to recognize that he is God. Because he asked him for something only God could do. But here is where I think we can see a connection to the epistle. Epistle is all about that Jesus is both true God and true man, recognizing who is Jesus, and here this man recognizes. So then he says, Jesus, remember. There's that word again. Jesus, remember me. Again, it's not like he says he's going to, it's not like he thinks he's going to forget him. But to remember him means to, 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 to give him his, his promises, to pour out his love and his grace, to give him all he has to offer. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And then these words, so powerful, probably all heard them a million times, but we should hear them again because they're beautiful. Truly I say to you, whenever he says that, truly, it's drawing attention. Pay attention to what's about to happen. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, I only have a couple minutes left. There's some, you know, depending on who you talk to, debate on those words and paradise and heaven, all this stuff. But when you look at this, you have a couple of things. He says this today. The, the criminal in verse 42 says, Jesus, when it happens. So it's kind of this indefinite term. Maybe whenever it happens. But Jesus makes a definite statement. says today. So Jesus definitely. He's emphasizing the present reality that today, right here and now, you're with me. Which also then has the eschatological implications as well. So the fact that when Jesus says to a person that, he, that you're with him, he says it, it happens and it's affected both here and now and forever. Especially you have this man hanging on the cross right before he's about to die. So we do look at that and see. I, I believe, agreed with Pastor Thomas, right? Make sure we're on the same page. I believe this is talking about that when he dies, which will happen just moments, minutes, whatever it is, that he's going to be with him in paradise. Meaning he's going to be with Jesus in his presence and enjoy all that it means to be in the Lord's presence. To be in his nearer presence. And these are words that we often talk about when we say, it doesn't matter when you come to faith. Whether it be you're as a baby or baptized or whether it be on your deathbed. Which I specifically remember Pastor Thomas had, had a visit a couple years back where he went to visit a man who was about to die. He was laying in the hospital and he literally did confess his faith for the first time ever. A couple days before he died. And it doesn't matter when. But faith in Jesus Christ, it, it affects salvation right here and now and forever, whenever it happens. Okay? Any questions or thoughts on this passage? That was like a super quick way of summarizing. Morgan. Sure, I'm going to repeat your question. Uh, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who is the them and the they in there? Who, who does he say that? You know, I really think we could look at it um, kind of an all-inclusive, because it doesn't explicitly say they, the criminal, or whoever. Um, I think in part... You have the you have it. You can include it all because it's saying that the people who are around, who are, who are likely caught up in this and jeering at him and, and criticizing all this stuff, they don't even know what they're doing. They're caught up in this worldly stuff. And then I think there's the other side of it where the people who are blatantly persecuting him. I think you can look at it because oftentimes we see in the gospel, people don't even see. They're just stuck on the earthly, the worldly. They don't realize the full, the ultimate, the heavenly spiritual reality of what they're doing. So even for those, he's pronouncing it. So. I know it again sounds sometimes like a kind of a cop out, but I think it's an all inclusive them. But that's a good question. Yeah, Kim. Yeah. Time's up. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, so Kim's question, repeat. So you think about how we can't separate the Trinity, and yet we have Jesus 
one of, you know, second person of the Trinity, and he dies. And so I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the question being, so then how do we reconcile that God didn't die in that? Um, first answer sounds, again, like a squeak out, but can't understand it because we're humans. So there's a part of this because he's God we can't fully understand. So there's that side of it. But the other, other more, hopefully more helpful answer to your question, I mean... You look at it and you see that as he died, but it doesn't mean that he was just gone and obliterated forever. I mean, yes, so you have his body, right? But you have Jesus Christ who's always existed, who's God, yet he became in the flesh. So he's always existed. And just because he died doesn't mean that God, the divine essence, the being of whom he is, went away. The best thought I can give, honestly, in a brief time frame and for one answer that honest is so challenging for us because you're not alone. A lot of people think that, right? And there are people who actually struggle to even believe and have true have faith in the in God because of that very question. No other questions? Yeah, we don't. I don't have to. We don't have to make questions up, right? But I've just always been. That in in scripture and God and Jesus, when they remember, it's very different than when we remember. Um, their their remembering is is tied to an actual concrete action. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness. My grandmother's best friend used to always before you'd leave say, Remember me to your mother and it really meant something. You mm-hmm. Sure. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that word remember is packed full of so much more than our earthly would ever, ever get to. Yeah. All right, let's have, close with a word of prayer, please. Gracious Father, again, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. Lord, you give us much to consider today, especially some of it very challenging. Because, Lord, we just can't understand. We can't fully wrap our minds around these things or even, Lord, around you. The fact that, Lord, you are far beyond our human reason and our understanding. And so, Lord, may you continue to strengthen us with your Holy Spirit, to strengthen our faith, to trust you for all the things that you've shown us and you tell us, and especially, Lord, to trust you with those things that we cannot see nor the things that we can fully understand. But, Lord, we know that you're working for our good and that you give us all things needful for this life and the life to come. So, Lord, we thank you for those things and we pray that you would grant us these things and all things in Jesus' name. Amen.